We are Youth's Choice, a multi-service student radio station brought to you by our team of 14 to 18-year-olds. Kicking us off every morning is Zayna with The Breakfast Show, packed full of energy and the biggest pop hits. It's 8am and time to wake up with Youth's Choice. Good morning, it's just hit 8am and I'm waking you up with all of the best tunes and you're going to be finding out all about the TikTok gossip and hearing my morning mashup. So let's kick it off with a banger just to make those good vibes really happen this morning. It's Britton and Nightcrawlers with Friday. This is Zayna Adadine bringing you The Breakfast Show from 8 till 9 every weekday morning. And after Zayna, I take over daytime, bringing our audience up to date with what the pop stars are doing across the socials. What's up, everybody? From the Global Academy. You guys having a good time? This is Lewis Wyatt on Youth's Choice. I'm in my mum's car. Okay, hands sanitised. Tick. Tuesday bangers ready to go. Also tick. Perfect. Let's kick off with Becky Hill and Sigala. Lewis Wyatt on Youth's Choice. Last night, I had a dream. In the evenings, our flagship show, Soundcheck, brings in-depth interviews with some of the world's biggest indie artists, such as Dean Lewis, Tom Grennan and Declan McKenna. That's a place we knew on Soundcheck. I'm interested to know, not only with you, to be honest, but just with every artist on the planet, pretty much. Like, can you listen to music whilst you're making an album and whilst you're writing? Not literally in the moment, but like, can you be listening to a song like in the car in the morning and then write a song in the afternoon without worrying like, oh, what if I'm copying this accidentally or, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Um... Well, I think it all starts there anyway. Like subconsciously, it all is just like a, is an amalgamation, the right word, of melodies and stuff we've all heard. And Can I just really quickly ask, how did the Martin Garrix collaboration come about? Where did he, yeah. you mentioned it in an interview I saw. You said, oh, yeah. I'd love to collaborate with someone like Martin Garrix. And I can't remember, you said someone else. And then yeah. I think that was before, I mean, oh, you could have just been hinting a future song. I, I, I probably was hinting. Yeah, I th- well, it was actually weird. There was a song that I'd written called Gold. And it was actually a good tune and it didn't make my album. And Martin Garrix's team had heard it. I don't know how. And then they, w- they wanted to use the song. And I was like, oh, I haven't finished the album. I was sort of thinking about it. I'm like, oh, God, I love Martin Garrix. And I was like, I'm not, know if, I don't know if I'm ready to do it. And then the album finished and everything. Then I was like, oh, when we had a chat, I was like, mate, use it. Absolutely go ahead. Feel free. He was working on that. And then he goes, he, I was sitting, I was in back in Sydney and he just messaged me. He goes, he FaceTimed me. And he's such an energetic guy. He's literally, he's yeah. gone, he's like, Dean, listen to this new song I'm working on, man. And Dean, we're going to finish with your song, Waves. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. It was a great chat. Unlike a lot of student stations, as well as music, Youth's Choice broadcasts a lot of news and sports content. Our weekly sports show, The Boot Room, takes our listeners behind the scenes of the football world. Everyone remembers their first football boots. The ones you saw your favourite player wearing. Maybe Ronaldo's Superflies or... Wayne Rooney's T90s. Remember trying them on in the shop, then getting home, opening the box and imagining yourself scoring a hat-trick in the Champions League final. Now Nike didn't just sell you football boots, they sold you dreams. Here's what's coming up on The Boot Room. If somebody had told me back then that they could be a $2 billion footwear, uh, football business, uh, you'd have been hard-pressed because you couldn't even in. You couldn't see it from where you were. How can that be when Zidane's just scored two goals in a World Cup final, but the picture I get in my head when I think of that World Cup is the Nike boots around Ronaldo's neck. It's hard to believe today with over $2 billion in sales and stuff, but then it was zero. It was pretty much zero sales. So they ranked you accordingly in terms of 
you know, the priority for the company and it just wasn't there. This is the story of Nike, a story of success and resilience. This is The Boot Room. Let's take it right back to the start, even earlier, the 70s, a time where football and fashion had no correlation, it was just all about the game. This, the decade Nike made the first step in their journey to the top of the game. In 1971, Nike announced their debut with the release of their first ever football boot, and it's not the success story you'd imagine. The Nike was a black and white leather boot, the very first to bear the Nike swoosh. It cost $17 and it, it was rubbish. Now we all know nothing's perfect in the beginning but for Nike this may even be an understatement. The boot could hardly endure anything but sunny weather, it practically fell apart in the rain and I'm sure as you can guess it wasn't long before Nike put football to one side and continued their focuses on the sports they were already known for. But don't worry they'd be back. After disappearing for a few years, Nike made their return to football in the late 70s. This time, they were ready for the game. But they needed to play it safe. And so they did. To begin with, Nike signed an equipment deal with their local team, the Portland Timbers, in 1978. Over the next two years, Nike were going to sign deals with 10 local associations and almost 40 players. In 1982, Nike signed a footwear deal with Aston Villa. This was the first ever footwear deal they had with a European team. The same year, same Villa team and the same footwear found themselves playing against Bayern Munich in the finals of the European Cup. Villa still hanging on 0-0. Mortimer, Shaw, Williams prepared to adventure down the left. There's a good ball played in for Tony Morley. We spoke to a former Aston Villa player and Nike's first ever soccer promotions manager, Mick Hoban, on his recollections of the event. My old teammate on the Timbers, Peter Wyth, who was a legend at the Villa, um, scored the winning goal. And I was present in the stadium. I'd flown up from the States. Our local guy in the UK, Tony Penman, again, had, had gone to the Villa with a proposal for a footwear contract. They'd accepted it. And so they were literally the first club in Europe to do a footwear contract with the players group. So in Europe at that time, we had multiple clubs at lower levels, amateurs in Scandinavia, semi-professionals, and we, had, we sponsored a few individual players, but the Villa were the only club to have a team footwear contract. So if you imagine the European Cup or the Champions League of today, picking one team sponsoring that team and lo and behold then that team wins mm -hmm. wearing your products it, it was just like a jackpot and especially since the goal was scored by my old Timbers teammate so you know I had a personal connection I've been played with the Villa I knew Peter well it was the only team responsive for footwear and then to win on the night and to win against Bayern Munich which who were the symbol of Adidas Mm. You know, so if you think about Adidas today, you think about the German national team and you think about Bayern Munich, well, for them to beat Bayern Munich in the three stripes was just... And the 
two of the more senior guys at Nike had made the trip over as well. And at the end of the game, leave. I remember him turning around and going, as though to say, how the bloody hell is this happening, you know? It was just like uh, gold dust. And gold dust it may have been. From here on, it was nowhere but up for Nike. The very same year, Scottish footballer Steve Archibald became the first player to ever score a goal at the World Cup wearing Nike boots. This would be the first of many, many historical moments for the brand that would soon dominate football. Here, we have big-time football boot collector and specialist Derek Lyon to tell us more. For me, Nike really started hitting the scene, like all brands, about 1994-ish. Nike brought the Tiempo out in 94, and the Tiempo was a, a massive step forward for them. 1994 saw Brazil play Italy for the World Cup title. With eight of Brazil's players in Nike boots, this was a huge step for the company. But was it enough? I was at the 94 World Cup final working for Umbra. We were sponsoring Brazil in the final. You know, they wore uh, Umbro in the final, and that was... But we knew after that... Nike made it clear they were coming guns a-blazing. And, and they had a very simple strategy. It was basically pay four or five times more than anybody else was paying. If you were paying one million, they give you four. If two, they give you ten. Nike had made it very clear it was their time to take over. The, the commitment that they made as a company after 94. For 94, they had outstanding individual players from Brazil and Italy in the product. So the statement that they made coming out in 94 is, look, we're on the world's best players. That was, that was a big statement. It required a lot of resources. The product was worthy of that at the time. So they've made up speed from the late 70s when I was there to 94. That was sort of the tipping point. And from that point, they basically put all of their resources against the soccer business and they had not done until that day. In 1996, Nike really set their name in stone by signing a deal with the Brazilian Football Federation. The following year, they would then become the first ones to create a synthetic football boot. I mean, when you go back to 98 when they released the Mercurial, now it was kind of generally regarded as the first ever speed boot with the synthetic upper on it. So, you know, up to then, boots had been mainly leather. Over the next 15 years, well, you know the story. Arsenal, followed by Brazil, followed by Barcelona. They even signed not one, but both Ronaldo's. Nowadays, Nike has a player in every league in the world, from Sunday League to the Prem. They make on average $1.7 billion every year of general football sales. They are now considered the biggest football company and with a value of $36.8 billion overall, they're by far the most valuable sports brand in the world today. They've come a long way from the boots that fell apart in the rain. I guess you could say Nike really got their time in the sun. But the question we're all asking now, what will they do next? Make sure you watch this space for more exclusive stories from behind the scenes of football. When the world shut down, each day we made sense of the headlines and suggested handy tips for surviving lockdown, all packaged up in the space of two minutes. 
Hello, I'm Lewis, and you're in the Lockdown Loop, helping you get through Lockdown 3. The Lockdown Loop on Youth Choice. If you didn't already know after seeing everybody's Snapchat story yesterday, large parts of the UK experienced snow, and we were that shocked to see snow in the middle of winter that we decided to take to the socials to let all our mates know, and that really did save me from a long and tough walk to the bedroom window. Thanks for that. Unfortunately, the snow meant four vaccination centres were forced to close. However, this didn't affect the recent figures where we saw another rise in vaccinations. The lockdown loop. It's probably feeling like quite a while now since you were last in a classroom and the government are really not sure on when we'll be back. The man in charge of your health, Matt Hancock, said he wasn't even sure if schools in England would reopen by Easter. Of course I hope that schools go back after Easter. Of course I do. And the vaccination programme is going fast. We've got to make sure that we get the cases down. And we've got to protect the country from new variants coming in from abroad. The lockdown loop. So it looks like you're going to be homeschooling for a while. I imagine each key word in those study books are getting covered in highlights at the moment. But what if you want to remove the highlighter marks from the book for its return to school? I don't know if you know, but lemon juice fades highlighter enough to make it disappear. Just cut a lemon in half and get some juice on a cotton wool stick. Then all you have to do is run the stick over the highlighted text and watch the colour fade. The teachers will never know that highlighting became a habit in lockdown. Alright, that is it for the lockdown loop. Don't forget to follow us on the socials at GA. The lockdown loop led on to incredible conversations about mental health during the pandemic. Hello, Sam here and welcome to a lockdown loop special. Joining me today is a mindfulness coach, Philip Coxhind. Frankly, one of the most fascinating people I have ever spoken to. We discussed the effect of lockdown on our mental health and how that can lead to a bad working from home headspace. If you were like me and you think this doesn't apply to you, then I'd think again. The Lockdown Loop on Youth's Choice. So, Philip, at the beginning of this sort of, you know, coronavirus period, let's go back a year, people were really, really excited, weren't they? And it was kind of this whole new way of working from home, something people had maybe had done the odd day of the week, every few weeks, um, but not in a regimented every single day uh, sort of style that they had to do, you know, literally do overnight. And I feel like there was that excitement. But now moving forward sort of 10 months or whatever it is, nearly a year, it does feel like that excitement has gone. Absolutely. Um, I think with my human behavioural change hat on, <laughs> us human beings are incredibly resistant to change. I mean, it's, it's weird because if you look at uh, what we can eat, where we can live on the planet, we're incredibly adaptable. But we don't like change if it's enforced. And so at the beginning of lockdown, there was some resistance. And then we kind of climbed into it. Oh, this is novel. You know, I can do DIY jobs I haven't done for a while, or I can read that book or listen to the music I've downloaded I haven't listened to for a while. But now after a while, because of the change happened without a sense of choice, it felt like it was imposed. And I think then it started to feel constrictive. And now I think we're getting lockdown fatigue. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, I just want to sort of talk about this idea of staying present. And to anyone that doesn't know, how would you describe or explain what it is to stay present? 
in this new project I've launched called Techniques for Living, which will be a series of courses partly to do with mindfulness. And mindfulness is that term nowadays derived from Buddhist meditation. Yeah. And a bit like going to the gym every day and starting to work the muscles that you work on at the gym, any kind of mindfulness meditation is developing the mental muscle to notice the minds wandering off into the past and the future and staying present with the present. What, what am I feeling now? What do I know right now? It's the mind discipline through focusing on, on the breath. That's the meditation I use. And that was only probably thought of by the monks thousands of years ago as something to focus on because along with our heartbeat, our breath, unless you're dead, yeah. it's always going to be there. It, it's a constant. And by subtly focusing for even 10, 20 minutes a day on the breath, you start to subtly notice that even the breath, even as it comes in and out of your nose, if I focus on my nostrils and just the breath that comes in and out of my nose, is subtly different. And before you start to think, well, hang on, why is it important? So what? It's different. By focusing on my breath, in those few moments, I'm focusing on the here and now, the here and now, the here and now. So the project that you've sort of set up and you're, you're working on, had that idea come before this lockdown period or had it come from people staying at home? And, and I also want to say that I feel that in the last sort of five years, this maybe longer or 10 years, um, the stigma or the 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 public knowledge of mindfulness and mental health and yeah. looking after your brain has exponentially gone through the roof. Yeah. I think that was accelerated again by lockdown and people staying at home and um, people being on their own and, you know, going on to social media all the time and the internet and zoom yeah. Yeah. and living a digital world. Yeah. People have had to realize and have noticed that looking after your head and your mind and your mental health is so, so important. It, it is. And it's a mixture of all of those things coming together that's brought me to, to where I am now. I mean, kind of having been a bit of a pioneer for this work over the last 30 years, that in recent times, even hard-nosed cynics and a lot of blokes as well in particular are now starting to talk about how they feel. I mean, fabulous role models with uh, with the princes Harry and William to talk talking about this stuff. To even get the young forces to talk about this stuff, it's become acceptable to have emotions because they're real. They're there, and the more we can talk about them and accept them, and start to understand how we can manage our mental health, then the better. And the techniques for living. Um, courses which I'll be recording on a, a website up and running as a landing page at the moment really did come uh, as a result of lockdown. It's something I've been wanting to do for many years and I suppose when lockdown happened I thought okay this is it. Yeah absolutely. <laughs> so I, I got together with two two colleagues one's a, a brilliant business strategist and one is an ex-BBC producer and, um, and and so the techniques for living idea came from that but it it only really is in response to, to lockdown and it's almost like a perfect 
good storm, if you like, uh, of the, the, the rising awareness of mental health and, and coming together of it all. Coming together and people wanting to, to, to discuss the reality of how you feel. I mean, even now, walking down the street, um, you know, I don't go on about mindfulness when I go to Sainsbury's, but, you know, I'll, I'll meet a neighbour and, and I'll say, and how are you? And they'll go, um, I'm all right, I suppose. Uh, a bit depressed today, but it'll come and go. And you'd never get that response pre-lockdown. Even if people felt a bit down, the kind of sensibility, the social sensibility, probably a bit of Britishness is, you'd say, how are you? And the knee-jerk response is, oh, I'm fine. Yeah. Absolutely, there's so a, there was, and and that's like I was saying that that that's the stigma that I feel like has been completely torn away, or a lot yes. more. Maybe not a hundred percent. Maybe we're not completely there, but no. lockdown has accelerated that that process of getting away the stigma, and yeah. like you say, the British sort of uptightness about it all. Yeah, absolutely, Philip. I just want to get if you could three top tips for doing like we spoke before about working from home and making it a bit more maybe not fun but just a bit more bearable a bit more revitalizing and a bit more friendly to ourselves yeah great so my first i establish a routine uh i think that's really important so simple things like and i did it this morning it was a beautiful day and so rather than get up, do a few exercises, which I do. So that's one thing. Do some physical exercises, even if it's just stretching and and breathing. That's one. Second thing, before I do Zoom stuff or anything at home, I go outside and I videoed the sunrise, sent it to two mates. uh, So that killed two birds with one stone. A, it got me out of the house. It was cold, so I only stayed out for about five minutes. And B, I interacted with two other people, just sent them a sunrise. And immediately they came back to me. Um, the other thing I do throughout the day is take breaks. So if I'm, I've got Zoom calls set up um, or stuff to do, I'd write a list. Either I use a, a paper diary still, even though I've got an electronic one, because then I can add to it. And I'll number the things I want to do. And I'll actually put in my diary, go out for a walk in between the things that are in my diary. So set yourself a, a rhythm get a routine um, and stick to it. That's the first kind of overarching tip. Second one is you see if you can do at least one thing per day they haven't done for a while or ever. I like that. So, so a friend of mine before Christmas sent me a photograph of a jigsaw she's working on. And again, I just noticed my head going, oh, it's a bit lame. You know, jigsaws are for kids. And then she said, it's a, a thousand piece jigsaw. I thought, oh no, that sounds mad. So I just thought, come on, Philip. So I went into Amazon, chose a jigsaw, and I started doing a jigsaw. And it filled probably a couple of hours of my day, which in the evening particularly, which I'd have probably just spent watching crap television. So the second tip is do something different. And thirdly, make sure that you're not doing any activity for more than an hour. So if you're doing a Zoom call, make sure it's no longer an hour then go out for a walk or do something differently. If you're doing study at home, an hour, just walk around the room, make yourself a cup of tea. Do something, see, keep chopping up your day into max hour chunks with little breaks in between. Otherwise, it can just become wall-to-wall 
digital or, or, or connected. Those are the three things I could, I, could I really use. like those three. Thank you for that, Philip. Um, so let's let's look forward and have a little bit of hope if we can. Yes. Um, yes. What would you say that is worth plan? Not so much planning, but looking forward to. In because I've certainly got a few ideas that I want to do. Yeah. In summer, whether or not they'll happen. I don't know, but I'm certainly hoping and sort of planning that they will happen. Yeah. What's your opinion on that? Should we be planning? Should we not? Well, planning is a a word I'll probably be a bit more cautious about, but I mean, the the central tenet of of the philosophy I've evolved, which will be on the techniques for living stuff and certainly was the zenith of the, the book, change by choice. What do I mean by change by choice? What I mean is within every apparent no choice situation, there's always a choice and the trick is to find it. So the trick is to find things that I can look forward to that aren't, isn't going to change, that even the pandemic can't stop. And there may be really almost silly little things. So for instance, and this isn't to wish my life away, uh, we can sometimes think that the world and, and, and dates just merge into one. And January has felt like a very long month. And did you know that a week today is the first day of February? And did you know that four weeks on Monday is the first day of March? Which some people think is the first day of spring. And eight weeks on Sunday, we change the clocks. <laughs> now that's just one example of having little markers in my head that's something that the pandemic and the government can't take away from me yeah um and combined with doing some things differently i, I can do that as for as for solid things i can plan so um could i do a uh, a party online with mates that I haven't done before and I know everyone's tired of Zoom. I'm sick to the back teeth of Zoom to an extent. Uh, but how could I do, what could I do on Zoom that I actually haven't done before? And again, plan that. Um, and then I think also it is realistic to think that if we look at the vaccination program and, and look at the way things are going currently, I could make tentative plans for stuff outdoors, possibly from Easter onwards, depending on the stats and depending on your faith in things. Um, and, and I mean, I actually went away for two weeks over Christmas because I you said, do your research. It's changed now because of lockdown. But when I planned it in November, I found that actually Antigua is one country that had its borders open. And I had to pay for a PCR test beforehand um, and follow DA's rules. Uh, and when I got there, they've had seven deaths since March. I was actually safer in Antigua than I was in the UK. And that was mind-blowing. Um, and so you don't have to go to Antigua. A lot of people may not be able to afford to. And I felt extremely fortunate to go. And I came back two days before the rules. Alternative plan. So that if the plan you want doesn't happen, you don't get too attached to the thing that you've planned for. You've got a backup plan. And that's another kind of mindfulness thing is for us not to get too attached. And I think... One of the things that we've all learned to have to do, but I'd suggest people climb into as a choice rather than, oh dear, I've got to, is to plan for things that are uh, less big scale and therefore less disappointment. I like that tip. Plan small things. I like that. Uh, Philip, thank you so, so much. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Pleasure. The Lockdown Loop. 
That's it from the Lockdown Loop. Don't forget to follow us on all socials. Just search Youth Choice GA. And we'll see you tomorrow. We also wanted to shed light on the effect COVID-19 was having on our community by producing an audio documentary on the struggling Heathrow Airport. London Heathrow is Europe's biggest and busiest airport, transporting more than 74 million passengers every year. Then this happened. Coronavirus. 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 Stay at home. Heathrow was the world's second largest passenger airport with a plane landing every 45 seconds. But what is it now after COVID-19? Let's time it and see. And there we go, two and a half minutes later, the next plane landed. That is over three times as long as it was at its peak and can even be as long as 15 minutes. But overall, how much has the airline industry shrunk? Let's ask the editor of Simple Flying and aviation expert, Joanna Bailey. When we're looking at a shrink, it's on many scales and many types of things. So in terms of the global fleet, um, you know, we're seeing airlines retiring huge numbers of aircraft um, that previously weren't planned to be retired yet. So in terms of planes flying, there is a reduction. I think the bigger reduction is in the people that are working for those airlines and how um, many of them will not be continuing to work for them long term. Heathrow isn't just about the airport. Hundreds of local businesses rely on people and goods passing through. And if the airport goes, so do jobs. So some of the larger airlines, we're looking at 30 to 40% of people are, are taking involuntary furloughs or early retirements or otherwise separating from the company. Um, and in terms of kind of flights that we're seeing, you know, we went from normal levels down to 90% less than normal levels at the start of COVID. Right now we're up to about 50%. So uh, most airlines are flying about 50% of the capacity they were this time last year. Um, but obviously those planes aren't flying full, which is another big tell. So I'm currently stood outside a McDonald's. It's a bustling area of homes, schools and businesses. But this is where Heathrow's third runway is meant to be. However, with delays, court hearings and the head of IAG all saying it's not going to happen, what is the future for Heathrow's third runway with the airline industry in reverse? If Heathrow wants to grow, then it is needed. Um, uh, you know, first of all, it needs to get back to where it was and then we can look at growth again. So it's going to be that two to four year period again before the third runway is even on the table, I should imagine. But should we get back to 2019's passenger levels and should Heathrow climb back to where it was in terms of demand? I absolutely think that the third runway will be back on the cards, but probably not until later in the decade. So maybe you will be able to get your Happy Meal a little bit longer. It's not just about the number of planes flying. It's also about the demise of British Airways' most iconic plane, the Boeing 747. COVID was certainly the nail in the coffin for uh, 747. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's a beautiful airplane. It's withstood the test of time. Um, but, you know, it's a four-engine airplane. It's got high maintenance costs. Uh, and it's not the most efficient to operate in this day and age. So... It was particularly a shame that it went out with such a whimper rather than a bang because uh, when Australian airline Qantas retired theirs, they, they flew some amazing kind of sightseeing flights for their frequent flyers and they, they ran some really good kind of farewell ceremonies where journalists got invited. And, uh, and when it left, when the last one left Australia, it drew a picture of the Qantas kangaroo in the sky as it went. So it was really a celebration more than a kind of sadness. But with British Airways, they're just off and we don't get really get a chance to say goodbye, which is very sad. When a jumbo jet takes off from Heathrow one final time, where does it go? There's a, a couple of companies are doing kind of reclaimed 
747 parts, there's a company called Aerotag and they kind of take bits of the fuselage and turn them into key rings and they actually label which aircraft it's come from. So if you're a bit of an av geek, that's a great memento to have. Um, there's some other companies that are repurposing parts of the aircraft into things like desks, you know, bits of the wing become side tables and, uh, you know, the windows can be made into clocks and that's really cool. But, uh, but yeah, it's um, all very expensive and very expensive for the company to get into. So an awful lot of it will just end up as uh, tin cans. So how long could it take for the airline industry to get back to normal? From now, I think we'll just see a lot of recovery and we'll see a lot more airlines trying to figure out where they fit and they're trying to go where the money is. Industry predictions are that, you know, anything between two and four years before we see passenger demand return to normal. Um, you know, there's some big hurdles to overcome, particularly with the virus itself. Um, and also, you know, just getting the passengers confident that it is safe to fly again and it is safe to travel. So, um, you know, again, I wouldn't like to put a firm number on it, but the industry is, is expecting anything up to kind of four years. So with Emirates promising £1,500 for a funeral if you die of COVID-19 after flying with them and clocks being made out of a 747's fuselage, things are not looking rosy for the airline industry. Will we ever see Heathrow's third runway? Who knows? But one thing is for sure. One of the world's largest airports, situated in one of the world's great cities, on an island, things aren't going to stay quiet forever. And we aim the news to our young audience by explaining rather than telling. On Tuesday, the American people will have their say on who should be the most powerful person on earth for the next four years. In the last election, the person with the most amount of votes didn't actually win the election. Are you a bit confused? Let's go for it now. Americans actually vote for people called electors in their state who are supporting the candidate they want to be president. This process is called the Electoral College. The more people who live in a state, the more electors that state has. For example, Florida, Hello, Florida, which has lots of people living there, has 29 votes, while Alaska has only three. In total, there are 538 votes. The candidate with the most electors wins all the state's electoral college votes. And the first candidate to win enough states to get to 270 electoral votes becomes the president. 270 is the magic number in this election. It's literally a political race to become the most important person on earth. Find out about all the twists, turns and results of this election with Caleb Shepard throughout Youth Choice Breakfast from 8am on Wednesday. You will have heard throughout our entry that our imaging sounds authentic and original. That's because we use our own voiceovers. Bringing you more variety. You're listening to Youth's Choice. We hope that you've enjoyed our entry, and we'd love to highlight that 60% of what you've just heard was produced remotely, sometimes with just a phone and basic editing software. 